Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nation Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, previewing the Fourth Global Nash Congress. Each conversation collects all the snippets from within the episode with a common theme and unites them in a conversation. This conversation touches on an array of drug-related issues, ranging from promising presentations on fructose metabolism to the importance of having regulators present at meetings like this one. Along the way, we ask whether developers might want to focus more on the needs of F4 patients and the degree to which escalating and de-escalating therapies are the future of NASH. The conversation switches topics, but inspires thought and challenges assumptions throughout. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. On April 28th and 29th, stakeholders from across the global fatty liver community will come together to hear 43 speakers address a range of NASH and NAFLD issues at the 4th Global NASH Conference. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Yarn Schottenberg, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and GenFit Global Diagnostics leader Sunil Hosmain as they preview some of the most exciting and forward-looking concepts from the NASH Congress this week on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Agents that target fructose metabolism. Looking at day one, there's actually two presentations that are entitled Targeting Fructose Metabolism as a NAFLD NASH Therapy, and they address different mechanisms of action. So I thought that was interesting. Not sure that's going to change or might have changed, but then the program that I'm looking at, there is one by Kendra Benz from Pfizer, and they're going to presenting some of the ketohexokinase inhibitor data that they have produced, which I think is an interesting pathway because it blocks hepatic de novo lipogenesis. And we've seen some compounds in that arena, but again, there they are not all equal, and, and this one in particular has the potential to inhibit that fat influx into the liver from, from the increased fructose uptakes, which we're seeing in a subset of patients. So I think it was, uh, at least from my perspective, a little quiet around that mechanism of action, but it's uh, interesting to see this is being uh, continued and where it's taken in particular. When I hear about these mechanisms of actions, I'm always thinking it might be of interest for a special subgroup of patients, potentially those where the disease is driven by that high fructose load and that even with dietary counseling is not being cut back. So, so it'd be interesting to learn uh, how that could, you know, in terms of individualized therapy in the future, be, be of use. And then there's the second talk as mentioning Hank Mansbach from 89Bio, small, small biotech. And um, however, they presented data by first author Rod Lumber uh, last year at ASLD, where they actually had quite some striking data in an, in an early phase 2A, I think it was a phase one, two A study, short time, 13 weeks only uh, on their FGF21 analog. And, and, and they had quite some impressive movements uh, with regards to the decrease of hepatic triglycerides assessed by MRI PDFF. And, and, and even some patients normalized, I think it was in the 40% what they presented. So I'll be interested to see uh, how that develops. And of course, both address fructose metabolism or hepatic uh, de novo lipogenesis and sorts. It is interesting to watch the meeting agenda 
move around from day to day or week to week, just as Sunil moved into the closing keynote position today, but hadn't been the last time I pulled the agenda down. Hank Mansbach had a discussion of fructose metabolism in his session discussion last time I looked, and not today. So I think it's intriguing, again, letting everybody know. We, we see the same thing everybody else does. So it will be intriguing to know the degree to which fructose mechanism makes it into his final presentation. It's also noteworthy that uh, the other two companies identified with GF21, Acaro and BMS, are not in this meeting. So he kind of has the FGF21 stage to himself. I was also intrigued in the two fructose metabolism pieces, so I'm, I'm right there with you. We'll see how that plays out. I, I think the fructose metabolism work is uh, is really interesting, and I, I hope they shed more light on how they think that mechanism may, may work with some of their early data. And I'm wondering if it acts... I don't want to say similar because I know it's very different, but does it does it block uptake of fructose in, in general? So if you drink a Coke, for example, does, does it does it get just eliminated through kind of just urine or does it make its way out of the body in a different way or is differentially processed in other parts of the body through other kind of metabolic systems? But I agree that at a high level, if, if, if people can't overcome that that sort of addiction that's there with, with, you know, those food categories, you know, is this, is this like a transitionary therapeutic, right, to help them? I totally agree with that. And, you know, Louise talks a lot in many, many different settings about the importance of lifestyle modification and getting to people early. But the people we can't get to, you kind of have to, they live where they are, right? So if somebody has way too much sugar in their diet and somehow it isn't causing a bunch of diabetes, or even if it is, and this is what you have to work with, some, there needs to be a way to do that. I think the talk about that and the level at which she suggested they might share data was really quite fascinating. I'm all being intrigued to see how that goes. I also really like the FGF21. I have to be honest, I, I didn't I didn't really know that mechanism all that well prior to kind of the human data coming out, but seemingly has a lot of very potent legs. Some of the first data we've seen, not not through 98Bio, but in, in general showing us kind of potentially some effect in cirrhotics. So it's an interesting mechanism for sure. Multifaceted. Louise, any thoughts on that or you want to go on to your first topic? My only thoughts on that are I think what Joel mentioned, it's about becoming more and more particular to the type of phenotype of these patients. Not everybody develops NASH and NAFL the same way. We're finding more and more mechanisms through which individuals with different phenotypes develop. And the more we become um, genetically looking for the right subsets, the earlier we can timeline that in non-invasive ways. Do we pick out the PNLP3s? Do we? So we become more patient. And, and I think Ian Rowe said it the other week, we treat the patient, not the disease, because I think the person who develops this disease is key. Which type, which ethnicity, which genetics, which predispositions. And when you talk about fructose mechanism in certain patients, we don't see that in others. So the more we can use non-invasive diagnostics, the more we can actually start to drill down into these different phenotypes and target different mechanisms. That's absolutely vital. And that, that's where we're going, I think, from all of the conferences that we've seen. Regulators are speaking at the Congress. One of the interesting things to me about this meeting is that FDA is here and regulators from Europe are here and a regulatory person from Nordic Bioscience is here to talk about what that process as it relates to biomarkers feels like on their side. The paper from Elmer Schabel, Germany, has, has a um, pretty elliptical title to it. Now it just says regulatory updates from Europe. In a previous version, it talked about um, regulatory issues for trials and patients. In any case, it will be interesting to see what he has to say. The George McCarthy 
our paper from the FDA from the bullet points suggests that he may be talking more about endpoints and how to figure out what the right analysis path is going to be. He actually has a question about how do you decide what the right surrogate endpoint for your product is, or at least that's what the bullet point suggests. That would be a topic I've not heard the agency talk about in public, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And I think in general, anytime that you get regulators into a meeting like this, if you can ask questions and if you can glean an understanding of what they're doing in the context of watching drug developers, you can emerge with a better sense of what the paths are likely to look like. That's one thing I'll be looking at with some interest. In general, Roger, I think, yeah, you're right, because the interaction of the regulators and the farmer and the academics, it's so important that we use the same language and sometimes, you know, they, they talk next to each other. And I, and I think this is one field with a liver farm, for example, has done a, a tremendous progress over the years. And I think, you know, this is being continued in this session um, when, you, when you get regulators on board to, uh, to report. Cost-effective approaches to pharmacotherapy. And I think Sunil said something there that, for me, resonated. It's about the layering. And maybe that's where we are heading with pharmacotherapy, is that these drugs are probably going to be expensive for the F3, F4 population. And I would want to see that if I'm going to use your drug, there's a different gateway. I want you to show me that you have tried with these people to change their lifestyle, to change their modification, and you're stripping off the ones that we've been talking about that have different phenotypes, so they may have a genetic predisposition? How do we help? It might be fructose. How do you remove them so that you are only treating the right patient with the right drugs? So as a farmer, how do you layer your drug into somebody's program? So making them more responsible rather than just providing an end product. Because if we always wait for the end product, liver disease is going to grow. And at the moment, our drugs are targeting the end stages because that's the expensive. So we do have to have a layering to try and prevent what's coming. Otherwise, we're just always treating the end stages. Good. And spoiler alert for our May 17th episode when Mazen is coming back. We'll be talking that date about the flip side of that, right? Which is even if you find a patient in F4 or F3 and you can regress them, as you regress them, you might be able to pull them back to less expensive therapies with fewer side effects, right? Just the liver is an organism that can heal itself. You mentioned the concept of uh, de-escalating therapy, which I think is very interesting because we're not potentially facing lifelong treatment in all patients. That will actually be exactly what we're going to be talking about is de-escalation therapy on that day. So, and, and so Louise, I think that's, that's the flip side of your coin, but I think both are relevant, right? The question is, how can you provide the greatest benefit for the most patients in the most cost-effective way? Part of it's about stripping who goes in, part of that's about can we de-escalate over time. A word on fibrosis and cirrhotic patients. The last thing I wanted to touch on is fibrosis and cirrhosis, both. What's interesting here is that some of the titles have indicated that some of the drug development people believe or understand that fibrosis is the game. But then when you go back and you read the paragraph, the paragraph is a lot more metabolic than it is antifibrotic per se. So if, you're, if your headline says fibrosis is what matters and then you talk about your uh, impact on NASH scores, well, that's the pathway to fibrosis, but not directly and maybe not of help for cirrhosis patients who are the ones who need the most help. So I, I'll be interested to see the galactic and therapeutics paper because that is clearly about cirrhosis and some of the stronger antifibrotic agents uh, CRV431 which is believed to possibly be a really good antifibrotic agent Patrick Mayo will be talking about F1 to F3 but since it's an antifibrotic that'll be interesting and by the way Patrick Mayo is one of the most engaging speakers or people I've ever met so if he digresses into any of the areas that he's prone to go that in and of itself would make listening to his paper worth the price of admission but there, there are a bunch of others Metacrine is talking about FXR Alda Furman is talking about 
about fibrosis, although, as I say, they talk more directly about effect on fibrosis and on NASH scores in their, um, I guess, their 2A or their 2B, the one that's been published. I think it will be interesting to see if we can learn anything about where people think antifibrotic therapy is likely to go, and particularly what that's going to imply for people in late stage three and then compensated cirrhotics, who are the folks who need the most help the fastest, I think. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups to share your opinion and, and hear more from us. We'll release our next episode on Wednesday, April 21st, when Jorn Schottenberg returns, along with Stephen this time, to discuss his work on machine learning. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.